Blog Talk Radio. the Court of Public Opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, which will be hosting various anti-Super Bowl parties and events over the weekend to deprive the big game of ratings, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where the city of Little Rock is opening warming centers at four locations around town. For more information, visit www.katv.com. Tonight, we'll be talking about the state of Texas versus Carlos DeLuna. DeLuna was convicted of the February 4, 1983 murder of gas station attendant Wanda Lopez in Corpus Christi, Texas. DeLuna testified at trial that the murder was committed by a man named Carlos Hernandez. The jury rejected DeLuna's testimony, found him guilty of capital murder, and sentenced him to death in July 1983. He was executed on December 7, 1989, after his direct appeal, state post-conviction, and federal habeas claims were denied. In 2003, Columbia Law School professor James Liebman and his students began an investigation, which resulted in a series of articles published in 2006 by the Chicago Tribune. In 2012, Professor Liebman published a lengthy report of his findings, and in 2014, that report became The Wrong Carlos, a book. We'll discuss the evidence against Saluna, the claims raised prior to his execution, and the findings of Professor Liebman. We're a live show, and calls are welcome. Our telephone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa, and good evening, everybody out there listening. Uh, I definitely kind of giggled at the whole uh, New Orleans thing. Uh, it's kind of funny. That's, that's very... Uh, that's very uh anti that's very anti Super Bowl right now in New Orleans. Right. But I can certainly understand why. Shoot, I was watching this well, morning, y'all got ba- y'all got worse news coming. The big uh center for the Pelicans is uh, he requested a trade and it looks like he's going out west to the Lakers. So the bad mm-hmm. news just keeps rolling for New Orleans sports. Well, and and the 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 whole thing with the Pelicans is that uh people are now encouraging Gail Benson to give the Pelicans the kind of resources that Tom Benson has always given the Saints. Right. Because we Which we have had a great team 
and we've made it into the playoffs several times. Um, that is but, certainly uh, something that's weird about it is the fact that the Saints, you know, obviously they, you know, just started competing within what the last 15 years being very competitive, but you know, they have, they've fielded great teams and things like that. And, you know, the Pelicans kind of been the doormat for quite some time now of the NBA. So uh, definitely I can see where people are getting frustrated with uh, that, especially considering, you know, uh, all the talk about how New Orleans is a small market team and things like that. You know, I'm sure a lot of New Orleans people don't take kindly to that. Well, you know, what's interesting, I I read an article after the, when the first anti-Super Bowl uh, stuff was being proposed and Mm -hmm. actually for what's considered to be a small market, we provide about over 50%, somewhat something over 50% of the share of viewing of yeah. NFL, NFL playoff, and Super Bowl. And yeah. so that's, that's the, uh, the, the reason behind the anti-Super Bowl stuff where bars are going to be showing the 2010 Super Bowl game. They're going to be I showing anything that. but the Superdome. And people are being urged on Facebook, if you stand in solidarity with New Orleans, whether you love the Saints or not, put your television on anything but CBS on Super Bowl Sunday. If your television is off, it's not going to register against ratings for the Super Bowl. If you're watching DVR material or on-demand material, it's not going to count against the Super Bowl. So, Choose something that competes with the Super Bowl. There's Puppy Bowl on Animal Planet. There's Kitten Bowl on Hallmark, I believe. They may not be doing it this year, but if they're doing it, their ID always has true crime shows. And the, the they play some good that, ones on Super Bowl Sunday. I was about to say, the bad thing about that is no network dares try to program against the Super Bowl, so... I mean, you're probably going to run into a rerun, but you may be able to find something. That's you okay. Like. That's okay because even if you're watching a rerun, you're not watching the Super Bowl and they're not getting a number. True, true. I definitely don't plan on so, watching the halftime show this year. That's definitely something that uh, doesn't intrigue me. So I'll probably mm-hmm. be watching something else besides the halftime show this year. But it'll definitely be interesting to see what impact this has on the uh, NFL's ratings going forward because, you know, it it is. It's something that, you know, was quote-unquote a crime, you know, committed in that game. You know, definitely everybody in the world knows that that was pass interference. So I definitely, you know, my heart goes out to New Orleans, but at the same time, meh, you know. It happens, and then it happens in football. So at the same time, I'm kind of like, okay, guys, come on now. Well, you know, let's let's see what happens. But you know, it it may it may result in if a lower number, and they've had an impact on ticket sales, by the way. I if they have that. a lower number ratings wise, then maybe they won't consider any quote unquote small market. They won't take those small markets for granted anymore absolutely fact i mean in favor of new york or you know pittsburgh might end up you know getting some preferential treatment because even though they would be considered probably a smaller market 
as opposed to New York or Philadelphia or New England. Right. Um, you know, they're they're they might get a little bit more respect for these small well, I mean, markets and not prefer a team like the Rams over the Saints. I was about to say one of the funnier things I did see was that, and I don't know how Goodell let this happen. Goodell, obviously, for those who don't know, is the commissioner of the NFL. I don't know how he allowed this to happen, but I believe they said like four out of the five officials on that field were from Los Angeles. Correct. <sighs> and I mean, Correct. not saying that there was bias, but I mean, that just looks terrible. It, it just looks it absolutely gives, terrible. It gives the appearance of impropriety. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. Even if there should was have none. Been, right. None of those those officials should have been from other locations, other markets, um, and not from Los Angeles. Absolutely, yeah. They shouldn't have been from New Orleans or Los Angeles. I completely agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's why in college football you see, like, in these bowl games where, you know, a Big Ten conference school meets up with an SEC school, they'll have ACC officials. So you don't have that possible, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, bias. It, it makes common sense to us, but, you know, hey, it's the NFL. <laughs> They're also, for some odd reason, a tax-free uh, – 501C, I believe, a charitable organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about that. Anyway, let's go ahead and get into this before we digress too far. Uh, we're talking about Carlos yeah. DeLuna tonight? Yes. Okay, okay. And, well, uh, I did look up some information on him. You know, I didn't find very much, so to speak, on a quick <coughs> search. Uh, I did see his mm-hmm. uh, Wikipedia page. I do have it pulled up here. But I mean, it pretty much starts with the with the um, crime. It doesn't start anywhere else. So you know, definitely going to be learning some information from you as far as what happened before the crime. Correct. And uh, there is a it's it it is a complicated story, and it it only became more complicated uh, twenty years after the murder with the investigation by Professor Liebman. Right. Uh, well, I mean, that, there's uh, that, there, to, that always seems to, that always seems to complicate things when somebody extra comes in and is like, oh, look at this. I'm looking at this with a new eye. Let's complicate things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a reinvestigation, but unfortunately, uh, sometimes those reinvestigations are not objective. There's right. an agenda. And um, so we'll we'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. But uh, let's start off now with uh, first of all and foremost, Wanda Lopez, who was Mm -hmm. the victim in this case. She was born in August of 1958. She was born and raised in Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, She had an older brother or a brother, I'm not sure if he was older or younger at this moment, Um, Mm -hmm. and her parents. She had been married, and apparently the marriage did not not last, and she had a young daughter prior to the marriage breaking up or uh, just after the marriage broke up. She was either Mm -hmm. pregnant. I think she was pregnant at the time the marriage broke up. She was living with her parents. 
she was working at the Sigmore, which was a diamond shamrock station, a filling station. It was a self-serve station. And uh, she was a conscientious worker. She'd only been at Sigmore a short time and had already been promoted to assistant manager. Uh, she was on time. She did her job. She followed the rules. And she was a very trustworthy person. And she was alone okay. on the night of February 4th, 1983, working the 3 p.m. to 10 p.m. shift at the Diamond Shamrock Sigmore Station. Okay. And that was on South Padre Island Drive in Corpus Christi. Okay. It was in a bad, kind of a bad neighborhood, too. There were some clubs. There was a, a strip club. There was a like a nightclub type place nearby. And then it was in a business district, so there wasn't a lot of traffic or a lot of of uh, people around except the ones going to the to the clubs at that time of night. Okay. Okay. So. Um... Obviously, she's working at a gas station. I can tell you right now from uh, I used to work graveyard shift at a gas station back from, mm-hmm. I want to say, uh, 2012 to 2000, roughly about 2014. And, yeah, I mean, there's some characters that come in there that either are going to make you laugh or they're going to make you go, hmm. right. need to watch Scared. this person a little bit Ew. closer. But, you know, definitely. You know, luckily, I didn't have anything like this happen to me. But trust me, there's some that make you pause. And and I, there's one other thing I want you and listeners to keep in perspective because I think sometimes the perspective of this is lost, especially when cases are reinvestigated so many years later. This was 1983. Um, cameras, surveillance were extremely expensive. Okay. And they were the exception, not the rule. In those days. Um, And, you know, police and what we knew about forensic evidence, physical evidence, uh, and how to collect it, best ways to collect it, to preserve it, and what it could tell us was still, people were still learning about it. Well, and I mean, that's in 1983 are not what they were even in 1993 had the crime happened 10 years later. Right. I was about to but tell you how I, even looking at, even looking at like something like the West Memphis three or looking at something like this crime, you can't exactly apply today's standards as far as policing or investigation to a crime that was committed. What, 30 plus years ago now uh, because, you know, technology is what it is. It's evolving constantly. Just like in 10 years, you won't be able to apply the same investigation as you do today in the future there. I I mean, it's something that a lot of people lose sight of is, well, how come you didn't do this or how come you didn't do that? Well, that wasn't readily available back then, and that's what a lot of people Mm -hmm. lose sight of is the fact that, you know, in some of these cases, it's not the fact that the police were just so um, so focused, laser focused in on uh, DeLuna, it was just a fact that, you know, they did what they could at that time, and the evidence po- pointed towards Mr. DeLuna. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that too later. <laughs> mm-hmm. But and then um, I, I want to just go through the witnesses because this is another important point that I want to make right off the bat. The first witness was a gentleman by the name of George Aguirre. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce the last name. Um, He was also born and raised in Corpus Christi. He was 19 years old. He had just graduated from high school. He's my generation. Uh, In fact, all all of these people are my generation, pretty much. Um, Born in between 60 and 64. And um, he was visiting his family. He was going to school in San Antonio, but visiting his family in Corpus Christi. He had gone to put gas in his van, and while he was pumping gas, he saw a man in the parking lot of the Sigmar station or, or right by the building by the ice machine. The guy was drinking a beer, and he observed the guy with a knife. And so he was keeping his eye on him. He was, he was unsettled, and he was keeping his eye on the guy. Well, then the guy puts his knife in the pocket, and walks toward George Aguirre. Mm-hmm. And George Aguirre says, I pulled the nozzle out of the the gas tank because if he had tried anything, I would have given him a face full of gas. That's, that's this is, I'm, I'm kind of setting the scene here. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy comes over, he asks Aguirre for a ride to a place called the Casino Club on Port Street in Corpus Christi. Aguirre says he can't take him. He's got to go, uh, he's got to go back home to his dad's waiting for him or something like that. The guy had offered Aguirre money, beer, drugs, whatever he wanted if he'd take him to the casino club. But Aguirre's not going to take somebody to the casino club who has a knife in his pocket. Smart move. And um, so the guy, you know, kind of says, okay, be that way, and then walks back over by the building. Aguirre finishes pumping his gas. He goes into the station to pay, and uh, he tells Wanda uh, there's a guy out in the parking lot with a knife. Um, I'm going to go call the police. And Wanda's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to call him too. And Aguirre leaves. At the time he stepped out, there were two other customers at the counter that Wanda was waiting on. He walks out. As he's walking out or getting into his car, the man walks into the, into the service station, into the store part of the station. And um, at that point in time, Wanda was on the phone with 911. But we'll, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to go through that later. Um, right. So Mr. Gary leaves. He wants to go. He goes to a security guard at a bowling alley nearby to see if that guy can go over to the uh, Sigmore station because as he's driving past, he sees the man and Wanda struggling mm-hmm. inside the store. The security guard says, the only thing I can do is call the police. And this is before 911. So you call uh-huh. a, an emergency telephone number and you waited for someone to answer it. And they didn't have anything that tell, told them who you were or where you were calling from which is another thing I need to, you know, get out there to set the, you know, to set the stage, so to speak. 
when we get into that a little bit later. Um, so he realizes the security guard can't help, so then he's heading back to the station. He sees the police activity at the station. Everything's already happened. Uh, the police responded, and he waits at the station while they're uh, trying to help Wanda and, and do what they need to do. And then the next witness is a guy by the name of Kevin Baker. Pardon me. He was a little bit older. He was uh, in, te- excuse me, in Texas and working, but he wasn't from Corpus Christi. And uh, he had just gotten off work. He stopped to fill his vehicle up, his car, and then he was supposed to go take his wife to a club. And he hears, as he's starting to pump gas, he hears a thump on the window at the of the store. He looks. He sees a man and woman struggling. At first, initially, he thinks playing, but then he realizes the guy is really pulling the woman's hair. It's something serious. He decides he's going to intervene and try and help, and so he walks toward the building as he's walking toward the building, the suspect throws Wanda to the ground and then walks out, is face-to-face with Kevin Baker for a few seconds and says, don't mess with me, I have a gun. Uh-huh. And then turns and flees uh, toward the, I think toward the back of the station. The next witness is Baker, again, he tries to help Wanda, who has come out to the front door of the store and collapsed. She's bleeding heavily from a single stab wound in her left side. Um, She's in bad shape. And uh, he tries to help her. The police arrive. They take over trying to help her. And he, again, he too sticks around while the police help her and do what they need to do. And he waits at the station. Now, I've heard allegations that the, the witnesses were allowed to wait with each other and, and commingle with each other, but I haven't found anything, any statements in any of the materials that I read, including some of the trial testimony, that supports that. Um, there were several officers who responded to the call to the Sigmore, and my understanding is that they actually kept these witnesses separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had some, you know, they had people from the clubs in different places who came. So there, there ended up being, you know, 15 or 20 people kind of looky-loo in to see what was going on. So, um, but like I said, I, I never found any evidence or any statements from Mr. Aguirre or Mr. Baker that either of them talked to one another prior to them giving their statements to police. So I want to clear right. that up too because that's a, that's an, uh, an, an implication that's made uh, on several things that I listened to and several things that I read. But again, I I don't think the witnesses were allowed to get together and, you know, get their stories together. Um, No, I'm pretty sure that's frowned upon. Right. And like I said, I I, I don't think that, I don't think Georgia Geary or Kevin Baker, I don't think either one knew that the other one was a witness anyway. And they didn't know one another. So um, 
But, you know, like I said, if somebody finds some kind of evidence or testimony that they were allowed to talk to one another, please, by all means, point that out and and I'll revise my opinion. And then right. there's a, a married couple, John Arsugwa and his wife, Julie Arsugwa. And I, I think you may have noticed in Corpus Christi, it's a, a, a very large Hispanic population. So um, keep that in mind. And they are a married couple. They'd only been married a few weeks. They were going to a club called Phase 3, which was very close to the Sigmar station. And as they were pulling into a parking lot, they saw a guy running across a field. For a minute, he was in front of their car, or a few seconds, he was in front of their car, and then he ran. And they thought that was a little odd. And then they saw the police activity at the Sigmar station, which is like a couple buildings down, and they kind of thought, okay, something must be going on. John Mm -hmm. flashed his brights to try and get police to come to him, but they didn't, you know, pick up on that. And so he moved his car, and then he ran over to the Sigmore station, and he let an officer know what he had just seen. And between George Aguirre, Kevin Baker, and John Arsugua, uh, the police were able to dispatch uh, a description of a Hispanic male in his 20s wearing a white shirt and dark pants running into the neighborhood behind the Sigmore station. Mm -hmm. Um, And Carlos uh, DeLuna was found hiding under a truck. He'd been observed hiding under another vehicle over on Easter Street. He had gotten out from under that vehicle and run and gone and hidden under another truck. He had lost his shirt, he had lost his shoes, and he had scratches on him. Okay. Which more likely than not came during his flight from the Sigmore station. Um, but uh, he was found under the truck and brought back to the Sigmore station. Georgia Geary and Kevin Baker both identified him in a an at-the-scene show. I, I, I can't remember what it was. Like a show-up, I think is what they used to call it. It's A lineup? It means not used as much now. And generally when it is used, and there's a good reason for using it, if you're doing a crime like, you know, like a burglary or a, a, even a violent crime, armed robbery or something, and you're chasing somebody through the neighborhood and some guy runs from you and you grab him and you think you've got the guy, you take him back to the scene and you let the witnesses tell you, is this the guy, yes or no? If it's the guy, you arrest him and generally that is followed up with a with a lineup or a uh-huh. photo lineup. But if they say, no, that's not the guy, then you say, I'm sorry, why'd you run? That was dumb, and let him go. Right. 
Um, but in this case, Aguirre and Baker both identified Carlos de Luna. Uh, John and Julie were afraid to take part in anything at the scene. John was able to identify de Luna out of a photo uh, array. Julie said she could not identify him at that time because she wore glasses and she didn't have her glasses on. So Uh he was identified by four people or or three people. Okay, let's say three people. We won't count Julie. She later identified him at trial, but we won't, you know, we'll we'll not count her. But he was identified by three people, two of whom are Hispanic. And that's also a point to keep in mind. Uh-huh. And then we'll get through, you know, we'll get back to that. But I thought that was an important thing to go through while we're talking about these witnesses. Right, right. So so now we're going to move on to Carlos de Luna. He was, I believe, the eighth child of a woman who had ten children total. Um. They were very poor. Uh, the mother, his mother was married, had several children with that husband, and then that relationship ended through divorce or death. And then she married DeLuna's father, had three more children, and then that relationship ended, and then had one, one other child that she gave up for adoption. So DeLuna was number eight of ten. Okay. Um, Their mom was um, not educated. She did not speak English. She only spoke Spanish. Uh, Mm -hmm. She worked as a housekeeper, cleaning. Uh, They lived in the projects in Corpus Christi. Uh, Very impoverished lifestyle. No no doubt about it. Um, There was some age gap between the first children from the first marriage and the children from her marriage to Mr. DeLuna. And so the older girls from the first marriage actually were more the mothers to uh, there was Manuel, Carlos, and then Rose, or Rosemary. Um, and they became kind of the mothers. One one was kind of Manuel's surrogate mother, one was Carlos's surrogate mother, and the other one was Rosemary's surrogate mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rose and the girls, you know, they, they didn't want to repeat with their mom, so they went to school, they, you know, got good grades, they got jobs working, and they, you know, they worked diligently. And... Manuel and Carlos, and I think the older brothers also, you know, they didn't want to be day laborers. They wanted to, you know, do more and have, you know, better lives. And uh, But Manuel and Carlos kind of didn't follow in their, foot, in their older siblings' footsteps. Uh, and Carlos, from an early age, was seen as a discipline problem in school. 
it was believed to be related to uh, some dis- developmental issues. Um, I think, you know, he functioned at a lower level than he should have been for the grades. Like, I think he was tested at 11 or 12, and he was only functioning at an elementary level in various areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the discipline problem and the hyperactivity issues that are also cited in those same reports, I'm wondering whether a part of that uh, lower functioning was due to just not wanting to do it, not wanting to do the work, as opposed to a problem trying to do the work or doing it. Because I went through, when when we moved from Houston to New Orleans, Mm -hmm. I went through a little stupidity phase where I didn't like that school, I didn't like the classes, I didn't like the teachers, I didn't like the other students, so I just didn't do anything. Right. And then the end of the first quarter, my mother is, is you know, shocked that I am failing. I am not going to pass fourth grade. And we knew that it wasn't, you know, uh, an IQ issue. I had had my IQ tested the year before or just after coming to New Orleans, and I was actually doing quite well in the IQ department at the age of nine. So it wasn't wasn't a learning problem. It was a not wanting to do the, the job problem. And, of course, coming home every day after school and and being, you know, confined to my room except to come out and eat dinner and take a bath and go to bed, that turned me around very quickly. Um, And Carlos's sister Rosa's mom kind of favored him and got him out of trouble. He He took some of the blame for Manuel for things Manuel did because his mom kind of favored him. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that also set him up for the issues that he would have later as a juvenile and then into adulthood because he he had a lot of, of issues with authority as a juvenile. He was stealing. He was drinking underage. He was being disrespectful to bouncers and people and owners of the clubs. You know, he's underage. He's not supposed to be in the club. The owner tells him he can't come in the club, and the cops tell him he can't come in the club. And he's like, screw y'all. I'm going in anyway. So he had an attitude problem. And I think his mom bailing him out and not letting him suffer the consequences only compounded his issues because he got right. worse as he got older. And at the age of 18, he was arrested in Dallas for attempted rape. He had followed a young woman, a 16-year-old girl, into a YWCA parking lot, grabbed her, tore her clothes off, and was trying to rape her when, when people walking by intervened and stopped him. And he went, Uh he ran off, he shed clothing, 
and he hid in bushes and ended up being found by the victim and her brother and police. Right. And then while he's on bail awaiting disposition of those charges, he steals a car and goes back to Corpus Christi and gets caught in possession of the stolen car and sent back to Dallas and ends up pleading guilty to the attempted rape, which is as a third-degree felony, and the uh, possession of a stolen vehicle, which is another third-degree felony. And he's sentenced at the age of 18, barely 18. He turned 18 in March, and this is June. He, or no, this is September. He's sentenced to two and a half years minimum, three years maximum in Texas Department of Corrections. Mm-hmm. So you would think he learned a lesson. He's released. He serves around two years, just under two years. He's released. He goes back to Corpus Christi. Another inmate that he was in TOD, TDOC with is released, and there's a welcome home party on May 15, 1982. He's released on May 13. May 15, goes to the welcome home party, supposedly leaves the party, but then later that night, the friend's mother wakes up with someone in her room. She wonders if it's her son, and when she says, is that you, the person jumps on top of her, removes her undergarments, and unzips his pants and starts kissing her. Mm-hmm. He puts a pillowcase over her face, and when she's still making noise, because she really is not, you know, she's not going to lay quietly for that, he punches right. her in the side several times and breaks three ribs. Well. And then he flees, and he's caught near the house, He's recognized by neighbors running out of the house. He's caught. He's identified. No new charges were filed against him, but he was returned to Texas DOC to serve out another big chunk of his sentence because that was a parole violation. And he was released on parole on January 13, 1983, which is a little bit more than two, maybe about three weeks before he murders Wanda Lopez. And that's um, one of the arguments, I think you read one of the arguments, you may have seen it in the Wikipedia article, that he didn't have a history of violence. Well, I would say the attempted rape in Dallas was violent. He threatened to kill the girl, and then the the attack on this this friend's mother in May 1983 was also violent. He punched the woman several times and broke three of her ribs. Yeah, kind of violent. Uh, that's that's not a nonviolent person, and I I kind of wonder if there were any other 
incidents between January 13th and February 4th that um, that nobody made the connection for because yeah. he really was escalating. And I think that what happened in the Sigmore was an escalation. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into that a little later. Right. So um, he was executed in, in uh, December of 1989, and we'll, we'll come back to that part later too. Now the other person I want to talk about real quick is Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez, Jr. He was born in 1954, and he died in 1999. Uh, He was also from Corpus Christi. He was one of six Carlos Hernandez's in Corpus Christi during the 1970s, 1980s. And that's an important an important thing to keep you know keep in mind. Um, he also came from a, a large family. His mother had a reputation. People called her Bruja, which means witch. And I don't know whether they're referring to Bruja witch casting spells or just Bruja witch, a mean mean woman. But she had a reputation of being a mean mean woman. And Carlos, her, Carlos, her son, had a reputation of victimizing women. Mm-hmm. S- sisters, nieces, girlfriends, wives, acquaintances—it didn't matter. He he did have a, a a history of victimizing women, but he victimized women he knew in his life. Right. Um, he was actually never accused of an attempted rape or a rape of a stranger, nor was he ever accused of, of any violence toward stranger as far as women go. Um, he had fights and carried knives and was up to no good probably a lot of the time, but... Um, and... Another interesting thing, in all the materials that I read, there is no contemporaneous documentation that substantiates that Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez Jr. and Carlos DeLuna even knew each other. Mm -hmm. Interviews with family members of Carlos Hernandez and Carlos DeLuna a couple of the family members said, oh, no, we didn't know Carlos Hernandez. Some of the friends and neighbors and family members of Carlos Hernandez said, oh, yeah, we saw them together. But there's nothing, you know, a police officer says, well, oh, yeah, I used to always stop and talk to both of them all the time. But that's an interview that he gave and, and information that he's relaying 20-some-odd years after events. And there's no contemporaneous documentation. There are no field interview cards which most police departments, if you stopped and talked to people like people you thought might be doing something or up to no good at a park, you stop and talk to them. You confirm they're not committing a crime. You don't have anything to take them in on, but you would do a field interview card, and you would get their name and address and license information and general description, and then you would file that. 
and it could be used later if you have a if you find out about a burglary a week later you can go back to the field interview cards and and that's how they find leads sometimes so uh but there's nothing like that contemporaneous to that time period and Carlos de Luna was in prison from September of 1980 until May 13th of 1982. And then he was back in prison from around May 15th, 1982, because when you violate probation, there's no trial. Your ass is back on a bus and you're back in whatever unit Texas Department of Corrections wants to put you in. Um, So until January of 83, so that's another year. So there's not a lot of time when they could have been in company with one another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's nothing from 1979. Carlos DeLuna was a juvenile. So he would have been... You know, when he would have gone to Chuvy Hall, he would have been going to the county jail. Right. So, uh, and in fact, right before right before Wanda Lopez's murder, Carlos Saluna was arrested for drunken disorderly outside the casino club after he wanted to fight a cop and told the cop that he wished that an officer that had been shot had died. Right. And after saying that, he's like, do you want to fight me? And the cop is like, let's step outside and then arrested him for or drunk in public. Yeah. So, I'm pretty sure that's not how you um, avoid getting arrested. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Carlos Hernandez had a reputation for in the clubs from people uh, of being either crazy or stupid. Mm-hmm. I think he was more crazy like a fox. He wanted people to think he was crazy. Because thinking he's crazy might get him out of trouble. But that'll come later, too. Right. So um, there were also, like I said, there were uh, five other Carlos Hernandez in Corpus Christi with criminal records. And the only reason that this particular Carlos Hernandez is uh, singled out is that um, he's the only one with a history of violent felonies, the only one with armed robbery, the only one who did prison time, and is tied with number six for the longest rap sheet. Now, it's interesting. They say he's the only one that fits the height and weight, but... Uh, there's another Carlos Hernandez who actually lived very close to the first Carlos Hernandez who was the same height and only 20 pounds lighter, which 155, 175, 165. That's not a big, it's not like the, you know, Carlos number one is 110 pounds and Carlos number two is 200 pounds. Right. There's a drastic difference. And then uh, Carlos number three is five six one hundred and forty. That's not a big difference from five seven, one hundred fifty, one hundred seventy five, one hundred fifty five. Um, now Carlos number four is only five three, 
and Carlos number and Carlos number four only has drunken disorderly, and it looks like after that he cleaned up his act. Mm-hmm. Carlos number five is five four one seventy four one hundred seventy four pounds, but five four five seven is only three inches. And then there's a uh, the final Carlos Hernandez number six. His date of birth is eleven twenty three sixty, which actually puts him in the age group with Carlos Luna, and he's got burglary, burglary, and then several drunk offenses. And I mean that's kind of similar to Carlos Luna, right? I mean, as far as the criminal record, um, I don't see. Uh, I didn't look at the dates, but I bet you if I looked at the dates, I would see that uh, some of their time in jail in the 78, 79, uh, and even maybe early 1980 before June, and he went to Dallas, overlapped. So Mm -hmm. that's something to keep in mind for later. We'll move on. Right. All right, so Michael and I... uh, for those of you listening, are going to do something a little bit different. We've never done it before. Um, what we're going to do, this case, although we've talked about it starting with Georgia Geary seeing uh, a Hispanic male with a knife outside the Sigmore store, it really starts with the 911 call made by Wanda Lopez. So what Michael and I are going to do is we're going to read for you the transcript from the 911 call. Now, this was recorded between Wanda Lopez and dispatcher Jesus Escochia. Uh, it occurred, the incident occurred on 2-4-83 at approximately 8.09 p.m. You ready? Yes. Okay. Police department. Yes. Can you have an officer come to 2602 SPID? I have a suspect with a knife inside the store. What place is this? Uh, Sigmore. Okay, what is he, what's he doing with the knife? I don't know. He was outside bumming a ride off this guy, and he just told me right now he just came inside the store. Has he threatened you any yet? Not yet. Okay, what, the money? What's that? What does he look like? What's that? He's a Mexican standing right here at the counter. Can't talk. Thank you. Ma'am? What? Don't hang up, okay? Yes. 85 cents. Where's he at now? Right here. Is he a white male? No. No. Hispanic? Yes. Tall, short? Uh huh. Tall. Yeah. Thank you. Does he have the knife pulled out? Not yet. Is it in his pocket? Uh huh. Okay, we'll get someone over there. Victim is then heard to say to someone, "You want it? I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. I'm not going to do nothing to you, please." A lot of commotion is overheard in the background, followed by screams. You can hear the phone dropping. Victim moaning. Hold it. Get a unit on uh, 17 to the Shamrock. 
got an armed robbery in progress going down. All right. That is... Gotta love them acting chops. And that chops. is basically... Hmm? I said gotta love them acting chops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that is basically... That's, you know, that's how the case started and and really how long the incident between Wanda Lopez and Carlos DeLuna took. Um, there are a couple other things. There seems to be a belief that there were two calls to the police emergency number. There was a call after George and Gary warned Wanda about the man in the parking lot. And then there was a second call when the man came in the store. However, based on a Geary statement, he saw the man entering the store, which is when Wanda would have been initiating the call to the emergency number. And you got to remember, the emergency number wasn't like 911 where they had a big staff and the calls were picked up on the second ring. Uh, in fact, as I understand it from the trial testimony, the only reason Jesus Escachia, who was a dispatcher, answered the call was because the red light was blinking and nobody was answering. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're probably, I, I can't say with absolute certainty, there weren't two calls, but more likely than not, there weren't two calls because also the detective asked for the calls from Wanda to be preserved the tape, the recordings. And only one call, this one, was preserved. Mm -hmm. If there had been a first call to 2602 South Padre Island Drive, then uh, that would have been preserved as well. And there wasn't. Um. And there's also what she says in the transcript. She says he was outside bumming a ride off this guy, and he just told me right now he just came inside the store. I think that he just came inside the store is referring to the person Aguirre told her about. Mm -hmm. And people are interpreting it as Aguirre. Right, Aguirre just came inside the store. Because Aguirre's statement also says as he was leaving to go get help, he saw the man walking in the store. And in another one of the statements he gave to police, it actually sounds like as he was walking out, the guy was walking in. Or mm-hmm. as he was getting in his car, the guy was walking into the store. Right. Um, so there's there's only a few seconds, and just like this call, this call I think was 77 seconds or something. We didn't uh-huh. time it, but um, it was 77 seconds. And another thing that I have to say, because uh, a lot of people were critical of Jesus, Jesus was doing his job. He was trying to get important information from Wanda that he needed to relay to the officers responding to her call. Now, granted, I would say that he could have said, 
when he said, uh, we're going to get somebody out there, I think that he should have, and he may have gotten somebody to call and dispatch a car to go out there. And considering how quickly they got there after Wanda was stabbed, that may that may be what happened. And when he said, okay, we'll send somebody, he did send somebody, and then he called armed robbery in progress because that's the point that he knew it was armed robbery in progress. Um, you know, he didn't know. If the guy doesn't have the knife out, the guy's just scary looking. It's not calm to be scary looking. And the guy hadn't True. threatened her. He hadn't really committed a crime. I think, though, I think most dispatchers and 911 operators do take convenience store clerks more seriously than they would take other people. Um, and he may, you know, maybe could have dispatched a, vehicle, a car more quickly a little bit sooner and then continued getting information from Wanda, but he was trying to get information, and that's his job. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult on her family, and I understand that it was difficult on her family because to her family, they interpreted this as not believing her mm-hmm. and not caring about her. But, you know, you do the best you can in the situation that you're in. Right, absolutely. Now, Escachia gave an interview to the people from Columbia Law Review, and you know he said he thought she had a little bit of an attitude, and I, I sent you the, the clip. I think she had a little bit of an attitude, but I also think she was scared. And she was trying to give him information. Right. Because she wasn't hanging up the phone, even though the guy's standing right in front of her. She was trying to be casual. <laughs> and yeah, she yeah, uh-huh. can't talk right now. Uh-huh. You know. So she was she was doing her best in the situation she was in. I think she was just dealing with somebody who didn't care about anyone from himself but himself. Right. And one of the things that bothers me is he may not have even been out for the money, although he probably wanted it because he was also a thief. Right. And his sister, you know, has said, oh, yeah, if you turn your back, he'll steal you blind. But he wouldn't hurt anybody. He wouldn't use a gun. He wouldn't use a knife. Well, unfortunately, perhaps when he's drinking, he was a paint sniffer, um, you know, you don't know him as well as you think you did. Because the way he was with police and and other people outside his family was not the Carlos that they knew. Right. You know. Um, But uh, the knife was a lock blade knife. Not an uncommon weapon in Texas, in the Hispanic community, according to the uh, Eddie Garza, the officer, who kind of was the the Corpus Christi police officer for that community. Uh, he said a lot of Hispanic men carried knives. And in his interview, he said a lot of black guys carried guns. And I think he was in the poorer parts of Corpus Christi, so 
he didn't really know what us white folks did. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it, it, it's not an uncommon, again, Gonzalez Hernandez Jr.'s uh, penchant for carrying knives or a knife is is portrayed as something uh, significant when, in fact, it's, it's probably not. Right. Because, uh, you know, Carlos Hernandez Jr., like a lot of Hispanic men, is carrying a knife because that's the preferred weapon for for guys in those days. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So, um, and uh, that knife was found in the store on the floor. Uh, they believe that the knife, when he stabbed Wanda with it, and that she ended up pulling it out, which is probably one of the factors that contributed to her death. Because once she pulled Mm -hmm. it out, she began to bleed more heavily. Um, But she bled a lot internally. Now, if you you go on to the roncarlos.net, I believe it is, and you look at the pictures, yes, there was a lot of blood. There were two layers Mm -hmm. of blood in her chest cavity. There was a lot of blood around and on the floor. That doesn't necessarily mean it would have been transferred to him. Because what she had was not a spurting wound from an artery, but just like a seeping, dripping wound. And depending on how their contact, where they were, what their body positions were, there would have been probably little, or if any, transfer. And there could have been transfer, but it was so minute that in 1983, they didn't even know it was there, mm-hmm. which is what I suspect. Okay, because in 1983, the testing that they could do, they actually needed a lot more than they need today. Mm-hmm. And um, they never found any fingerprints on the weapon. They never found any of Wanda's blood on her clo- on on Deluna's clothing. Uh, they never found any of her blood on his sneakers. They didn't find any of of her blood on his body. Um, They did not find any of his blood in the store, but I think, again, 1983, um, more likely than not today, they would have isolated, you know, some of the drops where, you know, people are moving through the crime scene and they would have swabbed those to see if they came up with something other than her blood. But more likely than not, because he didn't have any cuts on his hands or, or fingers. Um, more likely than not, all the blood within the Sigmore was Wanda's. Right. And they didn't find any fingerprints on the counters. Of course, a convenience store, you're probably going to, you know, you could, you very well could find fingerprints that have nothing to do with your crime that have been there for right. days or weeks. Yeah, tons um, of fingerprints are going to be on that counter. Yeah. And um, there was a pack of cigarettes on the counter, and the Winston cigarettes were advertised at 85 cents. Um, gas was around a dollar a gallon. Um, and uh, they believed that he, that the Luna asked for the cigarettes, and that's where you hear her saying 85 cents. And then that's when the robbery started. Hmm. Um, 
And one of the things that bothers me is he was trying to pull her to the back room. Right. And I don't know if he was trying to pull her to the back room just to hide her, to give him time to get away, or whether he intended to rape her. That's definitely, I mean, just based upon his history, that's definitely a possibility. And, and you know, in this time, he wouldn't get caught as he saw it. I don't think he was as, as low IQ, uh, dysfunctional, intellectually dysfunctional as he wanted people to believe. Um, but he wasn't necessarily a master criminal. He did a lot of dumb stuff, which a lot of criminals do. You know, they 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 do some very insightful things that are helpful to them, and then they do stupid things that point right at them. So you know, that's the nature thing. of people. It's the nature of people. So there was a manhunt, several several police cars, and a car, a constable car. They fan out while the uh, some of the officers are attending to Wanda and, and talking to the witnesses and, and keeping the witnesses at the scene. They're out in the neighborhood behind the Sigmore, and they get a call from a woman named Barrera, Esther Barrera, Teresa Barrera, can't remember which, who said there was a man hiding under her vehicle and that she saw him, and when she saw him, she told her husband. Her husband was going out there with a gun, and he came out from under the vehicle and ran from her house on Easter Street over to Franklin Street, which was like a block over. And from the time he went from Easter to Franklin, he lost his shirt, which he claimed to have just torn off going over a fence, although the shirt itself was not torn in any way looks more like he shed it. And remember in Dallas, he shed clothes there trying to avoid detection. Um, Then his shoes, he never explained how he lost his shoes. But by the time he was found under the truck on Franklin Street, he had no shirt and no shoes. And a few days after his arrest, a shirt and a pair of tennis shoes were found in a yard uh, of a gentleman by the name, well, last name of Garcia. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had found those cleaning his yard. And um, at trial, DeLuna said he'd never seen either before, that they weren't his. Right. So he was brought back to the scene, and uh, Georgia Geary and Kevin Baker... I beat him at the scene, and so he was arrested. Uh, while he was being transported, he kind of, you know, demonstrated some of his attitude issues. When the officer was reading him his Miranda rights, he's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And then at one point started repeating the Miranda rights. He told another officer, they don't have anything on me. I'm going to beat this one like I beat the last one. And, you know, so kind of a a cockiness. 
and, and almost a disrespectfulness. Mm-hmm. And almost somehow he had gotten the idea, even though he just served almost three years in prison in Texas, that he was somehow bulletproof and would not be going back to prison. I don't know. Um, and then, wow. yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, and also, one of the officers reported that at one point, the Luna asked him, did she die, even though nobody had told him the victim was female. And the officer said, I've been with him, and I never heard anybody say anything about the victim being a female. So uh, that one, that kind of sticks with me, too. Uh, because remember, he also told an officer, I, don't, I didn't do it, but I know who did. Mm-hmm. But he wouldn't give a name. And then when he was interviewed by the detective, he wouldn't, he wouldn't answer any questions. So he wouldn't give a name to police. He wouldn't give any information to police. Wow. That's special. And so the idea, I think that he tried, I, I think that he did tell some members of his family, it wasn't me, but I know who it was, but I can't say. But he looks just like me. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I, I so think that the seeds of that idea were, were being planted. Hmm? He's got an evil twin running around. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> so that's hilarious. Uh, do you want to take a quick break? Yeah, we can certainly do that. Okay, let's do that because I, I've made it through uh, without any coughing fits, but I want a couple minutes to have a lozenge. Okay, sounds good. Well, we'll be right back with more clear and convincing after this. for your vaping needs and accessories, then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, 
But more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub on Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Was I unmuted? Yeah, yeah, you're unmuted. It took me a minute to right. uh, unmute. It took it a minute to unmute you. Okay. All right. So we're gonna move on. Um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people looking at this case are baffled by is the short span of time between the murder, arrest, indictment, and trial, because the trial took place in July. Of 1983. I think it started on the 15th and it was over by, you know, the 22nd or 23rd. But what people have to keep in mind, first of all, most states have a statute that says when when you have someone charged with a criminal offense, they have to be brought to trial no more than... 12 months from the date of the arrest. Uh, some states, okay. it's 9 to 12 months. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't instituted, if you haven't started the trial in 12 months, they walk and they can't be tried. Mm. Charges have to be dismissed. So that yeah. is one of the things and I think with, with DeLuna's defense, they just did not – they did file one motion to continue, I believe, in June. Uh, but they just didn't have the grounds to succeed. Right. And so the trial wasn't continued. Um, in most cases, the defense will will you know provide some – uh, good grounds and get a short continuance. But, you know, like in, in the West Memphis 3 case, the murders were in May. The trial started in January. So it, it's not actually that unusual. Right, right. But uh, they they did some, they did have some free trial hearings where the defense, you know, challenged the witnesses and the evidence and, and 
you know, just weren't successful in having the charges dropped. But they knew what the defense, the state's case was. Um, there have been some allegations of things not provided to uh, the defense. However, based on what I read, uh, it, this was 1983, and Brady adherence was a lot more loosey-goosey. But mm-hmm. if something wasn't provided, it may have only been because at that time the defense had to ask for it. But there's references in some of the police reports to, you know, the manhunt, and there's an allegation that the manhunt tape was not provided. Um, it may be that the defense did not think they needed that. And attorneys in those days didn't necessarily want to get mired down in information. Um so I think it's kind of hard to go back and look 20, you know, 20 years back and decide what happened. Right. You can only get your best guess as to what could have happened, but you can't know what did or didn't happen. Um, and, you know, the, the manhunt is mentioned in several of the reports. And, in mm-hmm. fact... You know, the attorneys knew he was found after a manhunt. So if they didn't ask for the the dispatch tapes, uh, maybe they didn't think they needed them. And I've listened to them. I don't think there's anything on there that's really going to, you know, provide them any new information that they didn't already have through the various statements and the various reports. Right. So, but... um, and uh, so after the pretrial period went, one point during the pretrial period, DeLuna apparently did give the name Carlos Hernandez to his attorneys. And the attorneys went to the police with the name. And at that point, that's when the detective, Olivia Escobedo, uh, went through the rap sheets for Carlos Hernandez's and found the six Carlos Hernandez's we discussed a little bit earlier. Um, but DeLuna didn't give any information specific to one Carlos Hernandez or the other. He mm-hmm. at one point said he met Carlos Hernandez in jail. He said he knew him from school in his trial testimony um, he said he knew him through his brother, uh, but he didn't say he's Carlos Hernandez. He lives on Carrizo Street. His mother's a bruja, and he was the suspect in the murder of a woman in 1979. That information was never provided to anybody by Carlos DeLuna to specifically identify a Carlos Hernandez. Mm-hmm. or the Carlos Hernandez that he was talking about. And so consequently, um, what the police did do, they did provide the attorneys with mug shots for these six Carlos Hernandezes. Mm-hmm. And the attorneys took the mug shots to Carlos, to Carlos de Luna 
And Carlos DeLuna didn't identify any of them as being the Carlos Hernandez that he was talking about. Now, in hindsight, his attorney says, oh, he was terrified. He told me this guy, he told me if he identified this guy, he was dead. Uh, Inside, prisoner Hmm. out, he would be dead. Well, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for that still. He still should have given something to his attorneys, you know. I mean, it's it's crazy. And then to turn around 20 years later and blame the prosecutor and the police for not, you know, deciding it was that it was Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez Jr. Yeah, because he was afraid to identify the guy. That's mm-hmm. crap. I'm sorry. It's pure, unadulterated crap. And, you know, they they, they blame the police, uh, Escobedo, who uh, the, in 1979 there was a murder of a woman by the name of Dahlia Saucedo. And she was beaten to death. She was not stabbed. She was beaten to death. She died from blunt trauma to the abdomen, I believe it is. And mm-hmm. she did have an X carved in her back, and she did have a, a toe removed as a souvenir, apparently. But in 1983, when Wanda Lopez was Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez, was not a suspect in Dahlia Cecito's murder. Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez Jr. had been in, interviewed and cleared, and another man had been charged, tried. And acquitted. Right. Thanks to the testimony of Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez Jr. Hmm. But that's another story. But in 1983, there was nothing that suggested that Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez Jr. had killed Dahlia Sacito. It wasn't until 1986 that they received information that led to him being charged, but he was never tried and he was never convicted. And in the world of defense attorneys, that's supposed to mean that he didn't commit the crime. So we'll go into, we'll get into that a little bit later. <laughs> so, um, off of, off my soapbox. Uh, on to the <laughs> trial and the prosecution's case. <laughs> uh, the prosecution, of course, had Georgia Geary, eyewitness identification, he not only had a face-to-face encounter with Carlos DeLuna in the parking lot or at the gas pumps of the Sigmore, but he also saw into the store and saw the same man he saw in the at the gas pumps outside the store struggling inside the store with the clerk. And then you've got Kevin Baker who also saw the man struggling inside trying to pull the clerk into a back room, a storeroom, and then had a face-to-face encounter with him when he walked out of the store and said, don't mess with me, I have a gun. Threatened his life. Uh, then you had John Arsuga's testimony, which is what really you know, got the police into that neighborhood because that's mm-hmm. where he was running. And then you have the manhunt, 
and you have DeLuna's arrest hiding under a car without a shirt and without his shoes. And then you have his statements to the police officers. Uh, he was in possession of $149. He had been paid $135 that day. He had cashed his check at a Kroger's, which would have been a few bucks fee to cash the check. He had bought a case of beer, which would have been a few bucks. Uh, he had bought a meal at Whataburger, which would have been a few bucks. Right. Uh, he probably had scored some pot somewhere, which he didn't want to admit, but that would have been a few more bucks. And he'd apparently called his, his uh, stepfather at 8 o'clock to come pick him up and bring him home, and his stepfather didn't want to get out on the road because he was had been drinking. And the mother didn't see well at night, so she couldn't go get him. So they said, kind of, make your own way home, get a cab. And there was only $2 in his wallet when he was arrested. Mm-hmm. So he needed money. Uh, he also may have been somewhat impulsive. And so in the course of getting that $149, he was going to take something else while he was at it. Um and uh, so that was pretty much the prosecution case. I mean, you know, he's found within a few blocks, hiding under a vehicle. He's got a lot of money in his pocket, 20s, 10s, 5s, and 1s. Um, and it was like 20s, 10s, 5s, 1s, and then it was folded in a wide. Mm-hmm. Now, no fingerprints, no blood was found on the money. However... The money may have been given to him immediately before Wanda was stabbed because the policy at Sigmore was you don't do anything. You give them the money and let them be on their way. Um, right. But, you know, that may, have, that may have happened before she was stabbed, so he took the money he put it in his pocket. Because you hear her at one point say, what, the money? And then, you know... Um, so that was pretty much the case. Um, and then the defense case, you know, they challenged the evidence of a robbery because the Sigmore did not use a cash register, um, that had a tape. They basically used a calculator for credit card purchases and gas purchases, I guess. And then they inventoried the store. The store had been inventoried on Tuesday, and when they did the inventory after the robbery and murder, the store was $166 short, but they couldn't say whether it was money or merchandise or, you know, what. But, um, you know, still, he had $149 in 20s, 10s, 5s, and 1s. Hmm. That sounds like it was you know, taken out of the cash register, wadded up, and given to an armed robber. Yeah. Now there were there were five dollar bills. There were five dollar bills found on a on a drawer, the cash drawer. See, you're too young to remember these days. I worked at a movie theater and we didn't have cash registers. We had a drawer. And we okay. had twenties, tens, fives, ones, and then we had our, you know, pennies nickels, dimes, quarters. And we had to figure everything in our heads. 
as far as prices and making change. Um, and so there was just in, in the counter at the Sigmore, there was just a drawer that had the money in it. And the drawer was open and it had, you know, $5 bills and a $5 bill on the floor and change. And um, it's it's weird because they, they kind of alluded to the fact that she would have just made a drop of cash and there's no way in the short time between the drop and the and the robbery that, you know, there could have been that much money. But um, there was no documentation that she actually made a cash drop when the defense claimed it happened. Because when you made a cash right. drop, you put how much cash you were dropping mm-hmm. and what time and who did it. Keep track of what's supposed to be in the drop. Okay. So, uh, but they challenged the robbery, but and in, and in Texas, really, it doesn't matter. He, he could have gotten a penny, and that's armed robbery. He could have gotten nothing, and that's armed robbery. Because you remember Anthony Young. I don't think he got anything because he ended up shooting Mr. Patel. Uh, when Mr. Patel wasn't giving him the money quick enough. And so he ended up walking out of the store, having killed Mr. Patel, but not getting a penny for it. Right. And so in Texas, it doesn't really matter. Armed robbery, attempted armed robbery. Pulling a weapon and demanding money is attempted armed robbery, whether you get anything or not. And it's a capital Uh felony, capital murder, if, you know, the clerk dies. Um. And then Carlos DeLuna testified, which was really uh, not a good idea, but I think it demonstrates how manipulative he was. And he had had a psych evaluation because he kept saying, he kept telling people, I don't know what happened. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what my charges are. I don't know how I got to be here. You know, I, I went to bed and then I woke up in jail. I don't know what happened sent him for an evaluation to see, because I think he was going for an incompetent to stand trial. And uh, that didn't work because unfortunately he would pretend not to know stuff and then he would know that same stuff a few minutes later. You know, like he would pretend, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how I ended up in jail. And then later on, well, they say I killed somebody. Mm-hmm. And when he took the, um, you know, diagnostic testing, the personality and and IQ and things like that, uh, the uh, person who was administering those tests felt that he was uh, malingering. He was trying to appear worse than he really was. Right. And um, and you know, I, I mean, he was he was evaluated when he was you know, the juvenile, because he was seen as a juvenile is out of control. And a couple of the, a couple of the reports in his juvenile file say, you know, he, he's manipulative. You know, one minute he's contrite and he, you know, says he doesn't want to keep doing this. He wants to change. And then the next minute he's threatened to sue everybody and have millions of dollars. So 
so there was a an element of manipulation with him. I think if he could uh-huh. fool, he thought if he could fool people into I'm nice and I'm sweet and I would never ever ever do anything like that. And it was Carlos Hernandez. I don't know how I know him. Oh, I might have met him through my brother. Oh, we might have been in jail together. I'm not real sure. Um, you know, I'm afraid of him, so I can't say anything, you know, that he would get sympathy and, and he would get away with it. And I think that it was proven not to be the case. So, True. Uh, his his testimony, was, it, getting on the stand, I think his attorneys might might have been able to at least get capital murder uh, off the table for the jurors mm-hmm. if he hadn't testified. But when he got up there and testified and got caught in lies during his cross-examination, that pretty much sealed his fate because that looks like someone who's not uh, telling the truth. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. Yeah. And he was offered a plea bargain twice. Once hmm. prior to trial and once while the jury was deliberating. And he refused to accept it, but I think he didn't refuse to accept it because he was innocent. He refused to accept it because he thought he could beat the charges. And remember, he said that to one of the officers. You don't have anything on me. And there was no physical evidence tying him to Wanda Lopez's murder. There were no fingerprints. There were no footprints. Uh, There were footprints, but the technology in 1983, even photographic technology was not enough to, you know, to really do anything with those footprints. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, now they have, uh, like in 1983, I think, you know, they could do a cast of a footprint if it was in a in a substance like mud. They could take the cast. But if it was in blood on a floor or in mud on a tile floor, it was mm-hmm. lost. But now they have the electrostatic paper that they use. Okay. They can basically pick up the footprint. So... The jury uh, deliberated and found him guilty. They went on to sentencing, and it's deemed unusual and ineffective, but when you have a person with Carlos Hernandez's juvenile history and criminal history, you really don't want to put the family members on the stand and saying, oh, he never hurt anybody, he was nice, he cared about it, he loved everybody, because then the state is just going to come in with the rape victim, the victim of the uh, attempted rape, the attempted rape in Dallas and the attempted rape in Corpus Christi. Um, they're going to come in with those juvenile records that say he's manipulative, he sometimes he says he's sorry, and sometimes he's starting to sue everybody. And you know they're just they're going to make him look very bad. 
So what the defense did in this case, they just pleaded for his life. He was 21, and they pleaded for his life. Unfortunately, um, the attempted rape victim did not testify from Dallas, probably because she was a minor at the time. Um, but the uh, the lady, the friend's mother, who he attacked in Corpus Christi, two days after making parole, she did testify. And um, the jury ended up initially unable to answer the future dangerousness question, but they were right. sent back to continue deliberations, and they were able to continue deliberations and they were able to answer the question, and Carlos Hernandez was sentenced to death. I mean, Carlos De Luna was sentenced to death. Now I'm doing it because they're both Carlos. <laughs> right, uh, right. Carlos De Luna <laughs> was sentenced to death. Um, he filed his direct appeal in uh, right right after his conviction. Um, he didn't challenge the evidence against him. He didn't challenge the lack of physical evidence tying him to the murder. So he didn't challenge the sufficiency of the evidence of guilt. He didn't raise the issue of a mistaken identity. He didn't raise any Brady claims regarding evidence withheld by the state or uh, information withheld by the state about Carlos Gonzalez. Hernandez Jr., um, the only issue he raised was the deliberation. He, he raised the issue of the jury not being instructed on circumstantial evidence, which is not required. He raised an issue about the judge sending the jury back to deliberate instead of just sentencing them to life in prison, which was affirmed. Uh, and there were a couple of other issues that he went on and erased again in his uh, later state post-conviction. The direct appeal, uh, the conviction and sentence were affirmed. And he, his attorney on the direct appeal was one of his trial attorneys from the trial who did not file a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court. and then did not file any state post-conviction claims. Right. So his appeal was decided in June of 1986, and he received a an execution date for October of 1986 because he hadn't, uh, you know, he hadn't taken a writ to the Supreme Court, and he hadn't initiated any state post-conviction claim. And mm-hmm. so, of course... His family was able to obtain an attorney for him who did uh, seek an out-of-time writ, which was denied. Um, He also did file state post-conviction, and the trial court uh, did consider it. And one of the issues he raised was ineffective assistance of counsel uh, of developing evidence that someone other than Carlos de Luna committed the murder. And there was a claim that there were witnesses 
who could have attested to that. And then also the other another claim was ineffective assistance for failure to use some kind of voice identification technology on the 911, not 911, the emergency tape to identify the voice of the perpetrator on the tape, which I've listened to it multiple times with earphones, without earphones. I cannot hear the voice of the perpetrator. Um, but they they were, uh, you know, ineffective for not using that technology to to determine whether the voice belonged to Carlos Saluna or someone else. Um, the problem was, and I mentioned this on a Facebook discussion today, when they came into the hearing presenting these claims to the trial court and then appealing in the Court of Criminal Appeals, they didn't produce any evidence. They didn't identify the witnesses that knew it was Carlos Carlos Hernandez. And even then, they're not, he didn't specifically identify Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez Jr. Right. He just said someone other than Carlos DeLuna. He didn't even say it, his, his appellate briefs and filings, none of them had Carlos Hernandez. So uh, his state post-conviction claim was denied. He moved on to federal court, um, and that petition was denied. And he appealed to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit also denied the appeal or affirmed the state, the federal habeas court. And then he was given a second execution date in December of 1989. This led to a second round of state post-conviction. And at that point, the attorney who took that over uh, tried to raise a claim regarding the jury deliberation and tried to raise claims on a couple of other issues. But he mm-hmm. did not raise the actual innocence. And, and, and nobody... Actually, it's kind of funny. None of the pleadings by the defense in any of DeLuna's appeals referred to mistaken identity. Hmm. So it kind it, well, it yeah, it it kind of um, you know, was somebody other than Carlos DeLuna committed the murder, but they don't they didn't provide any information or evidence to identify that third party. And, um, you know, something else that, that is interesting, even if he had tried to identify one of these Carlos Hernandez's as the real perpetrator, he would have had a hard time because, A, none of them were caught near the Sigmore station. And, B, there was no physical evidence that would have linked them to the crime. Because this was one of those crimes, perhaps due to ni- 1983 practices and standards and technologies and training, there was no evidence. 
Um, now, at one point, fingerprints of these other Carlos Fernandez's were compared to the few poor quality latent prints that had been found at the Sigmore station. But uh, the uh, the technician who who did the comparisons, his opinion was that the latent prints were of such poor quality due to the weather. It had rained that day, and even though it was February, it was kind of humid. It wasn't cold necessarily, but it had rained heavily that earlier in the day, and then that night, I guess, was, was kind of temperate and humid. And so that was a lot of moisture that interfered with uh, being able to collect good prints. Um, there's been allegations that the, the the guy doing the collecting was not good. Um, and that may very well be because there wasn't a lot of training in standard in those days. Basically, if you took an interest in in fingerprinting, they were like, okay, you're uh-huh. our fingerprint guy. You know, it's kind of like Mr. Uh, Mr. Engler, Rod Engler. Right. You know, I mean, this is back in 1983. The, what we have today was just starting to be recognized and developed. But it, we weren't there yet. So, um, and then after the unsuccessful state post-conviction, they filed a successive federal habeas appeal. Uh, I also forgot to mention the first execution date. The federal court did stay the execution so that the, the federal habeas could be developed. The second federal habeas, not so much. Um, right. It was very quickly denied by the U.S. District Court, and then the Fifth Circuit immediately issued a, an order affirming, and his execution went forward on December 7th, 1989. Okay. And that brings us to Professor Liebman, James Liebman, Columbia Law School. He was actually wanting to do a study, or this is what he claims, of um, uh eyewitness identification being the most unreliable of evidence in criminal and especially capital cases. Um, And I think in 2003 uh, to 2005, they were relying on the Roger Coleman claims of innocence to say an innocent person had been executed in the United States. Uh-huh. And they were pushing for DNA to prove that. Professor Lieben was maybe hedging his bets a little bit. So he was looking for something that he could claim someone was innocent and he could make a uh, a great showing in the court of public opinion but he'd never have to prove it in a court of law. And so investigators went to Corpus Christi and began interviewing people and gathering documents and gathering information. Right. And um, 
again, I read you the I read you something that that um, they apparently found in the file from the DA's office a printout of rap sheets for Carlos Hernandez. Um, mm-hmm. And there were some notes from Olivia Escobedo, who was the detective handled, who handled the Lopez murder. And I think that was because the defense attorney said, hey, he says the, the real killer is a guy named Carlos Hernandez. Tell us anything about him. And so I think she looked at the different rap sheets to see if she could figure out were they in jail together, were they arrested together, were they known associates. And there's nothing on paper that puts any Carlos Hernandez as a known associate. The times that, you know, Carlos DeLuna was arrested in a stolen car, the guy, the other guy was not named Carlos Hernandez. Mm-hmm. So, um, and they found this Carlos Hernandez, Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez. He was actually born in 1954, so he's eight years older than Carlos DeLuna. And he had uh, drug and drunk and disorderly, some armed robbery, auto theft, assault, disorderly conduct, um, arrests going back to the 1970s. And he was he had he'd been on parole after armed robbery conviction and he had been caught in possession of a knife and reprimanded multiple times but not sent back to jail over it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they decided, okay, this is the guy because he was also a suspect in a, a murder in nineteen seventy nine that they claim was like Wanda Lopez, but Dahlia Sacito, as I said, was not stabbed. To death. She was beaten to death. An ex was carved in her back and a knife was used to cut off one of her toes for a souvenir which is what ended up with Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez Jr. being charged in 1986. Um, but that, you know, that was not, that's nothing like Wanda Lopez. The only similarity is a knife being used. But in Dahlia's case, the knife was not her cause of death. And um, another thing he did raise in 19... I believe it was in 1986 that Carlos Hernandez had been arrested for the murder of another woman in Corpus Christi, but he never developed that. Or, or he raised the issue of a, you know, someone being arrested for a similar murder, but he didn't develop it. And so, and he didn't prove it, so it kind of didn't go anywhere. But at no time did he ever identify this Carlos Hernandez as being the Carlos Hernandez that he was talking about all those years ago. Um, but right. somehow or another, Professor Liebman and his investigators divined that, and this is why they did. Because 
they say he's the closest match in height and weight, but that's not true because number two, number three, uh, number six are all close in height and weight. Mm-hmm. But he's the only one with a history of violent felonies. And that's why they decided that this Carlos Hernandez, Carlos Gonzalez Jr., Hernandez Jr., was the real killer, in quotes. I'm doing air quotes. Um, only because of that. And they downplayed, when I read the articles in the Chicago Tribune, as well as the book and the uh, law review article with low Los Tocayo Carlos. Um, one of the things they downplayed Carlos DeLuna's history. They downplayed how Carlos DeLuna was caught. Um, you know, they kind of did double speak, saying one witness said west, and the other one said east, and the other one said north, and the other one said south. They portrayed uh, the identification as the identification of a single witness cross racial. When in reality, it's the identification of three witnesses, two of whom were also Hispanic men. Right. And then they had some people who claimed that Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez Jr. was bragging about killing a woman at the Sigmore and his stupid Takayo, which is supposed to be, quote, namesake, uh, in Spanish, uh, took the fall. And they have another Eddie Garza, the police de- uh, detective, who, you know, was kind of a big part of that community, uh, who said um, uh, he had heard from informants at the time of the murder that Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez Jr. did it, but he got Carlos DeLuna to take the fall for him. Well, that's not even an accurate uh, an accurate summary of how it happened because Carlos DeLuna never said, okay, yeah, I did it, you know, taking the fall for Carlos Hernandez. Um, Carlos DeLuna, in fact, claimed he didn't do it. So he wasn't taking the fall for anybody. And, you know, you can claim, oh, he didn't do this because he was scared, but it could be, you know, he didn't identify any of those pictures. He's telling you he's scared, but that's just manipulation. He's not He's not really scared. He's just looking at those guys' pictures, and none of them look like him. Right. And so he can't, you know, he can't have anybody believe that any of these guys could be mistaken for him. And the the most egregious part of the whole thing is that they take these mug shots of Carlos DeLuna and Carlos Hernandez and they say, look, they're identical. And I look at them and they're not. But they've they've told people they look alike. And so people buy into that. 
Mm-hmm. And it's funny they, for comparison, they put a a, a mug shot of Carlos Delu- uh, Carlos Fernandez Gonzalez Fernandez Jr. taken in 1979 up against the mug shot of Carlos DeLuna taken sometime in 1983. And, you know, yeah, of course, because in 1979, Carlos uh, Hernandez was 25. Right. And Carlos Hernandez had not been drinking and using drugs heavily. For as long time, of time, but when you put the picture of Carlos Hernandez taken in April of 1983, when he was arrested on a traffic warrant, against the picture of Carlos De Luna in 1983, they do not look alike. Right. There is no way that anybody is going to mistake 29-year-old puffy-faced Carlos Hernandez. For 20-year-old puffy-faced Carlos DeLuna, because one thing they had in common is they both drank too much, and they both used drugs, and they were probably both huffing gas or paint. Right. But again, there's no there's no documentation that puts them together at any time in 1983. And one of the biggest things, the worst things Carlos DeLuna did for himself was he named a woman by the name of Marianne Perales. He said, I was at the skating rink and I saw Marianne and her sister Linda and Carlos Fernandez, Marianne, Linda, and I went riding in Marianne and Linda's yellow pinto or their mom's yellow pinto. Uh When the police reach out to Marianne Perales, she says, we haven't had the yellow pinto in years. I haven't seen Carlos de Luna in years. I was not at that skating rink because I was at my baby shower, and I was seven months pregnant. And I haven't seen Carlos de Luna in years. And Carlos de Luna gets up on the stand, and the, the he's up on the stand during cross-examination, and the district attorney brings Marianne Perales in, and he says, yeah, I recognize her. Yeah, that's Marianne Perales that I was with on the night that this happened uh, with Carlos Hernandez. And no, she doesn't look any different than when I last saw her. No, she doesn't look any different than when I knew her in high school. She looks just the same, hasn't changed. DA sends her out. Carlos finishes testifying, and then the first rebuttal witness is Marianne Perales in which she says, we haven't owned the Yellow Pinto, haven't been to the skating rink in years, haven't seen Carlos de Luna in years, and I was not out riding around with them on the night of April 4th because I was at my baby shower. Right. And I think it really, really hurt him in the eyes of the jury because his attorneys tried to imply that Marianne Perales was for some reason going along with the DA and lying their client. Um, And one of the biggest things, and this is a good place to wrap it up, the authors of the the book and the, the 
the review article, they're like, you know, yeah, Carlos Hernandez lied. He told a few lies. Um, but, you know, they're not, they weren't significant. They weren't material. Any lie told by a witness under oath on the witness stand in a trial is material. Because when you get caught telling a lie, a jury can disbelieve every word you've said. Yeah. So even if you're telling a little lie, it's going to hurt you. And to me, if a person is charged with capital murder and they're caught lying about one thing, you got to wonder what else are they lying about. And that is what juries will do. Yeah. And yeah, so, um, uh, so I, I just, my final thought is this whole thing is just a way to replace Roger Keith Coleman as a, quote, innocent person executed, unquote, in a way that DNA is not going to come back and bite you on the ass. Because one of the things they were able to determine is that there's no evidence that can be tested now to confirm whether or not Carlos DeLuna was guilty because that would have been destroyed after his execution in 1989. And, of course, there's an outrage that it would be destroyed, but he was executed 20 years ago. Or No, uh, he was executed 20 – wait. 2003, he was executed in 1989. So he was executed. Do the math. I'm horrible at math. 1980 to 2003. How many years is that? 1980, 1980 to 2003? 1989 to 2003. Ten years. 11, 14 years. Yeah. Okay. 14 years. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we both suck at math. Yes, we do. There's I no got doubt an excuse. about it. It's the Arkansas education system. I, I, my dad was an engineer. I, I used to drive him crazy that I did was not better at math than I am. But I'm really good at English and history. So I was made up for it in that. Right. But anyway, yeah, they're they're looking for somebody. They've got to replace Roger Keith Coleman, who was proven guilty by DNA testing. Uh, post-execution in 2006, uh, and they're replacing him with someone who DNA testing isn't going to come back and bite him on the ass, and they can argue that, uh, you know, the real killer was Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez, who died in prison in 1999 of cirrhosis of the liver. And so he's not here to defend himself. And they've got people that are willing to say he confessed. And they've got people that are willing to say that, you know, the pictures of Carlos DeLuna look just just like Carlos Hernandez. And that pictures of Carlos Hernandez look just like Carlos DeLuna. So they can sell this as a, uh, a mistaken identity. And then they blame the prosecutors and the police who knew of Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez 
but never had any information from Carlos de Luna that identified Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez as the Carlos Hernandez he claimed really committed the murder. And really, I mean, in the end, Carlos de Luna should have provided one piece of information that would have narrowed it down. You know, if he'd said, uh, he's my age or he's the same age as my brother, they would have looked at the Carlos Hernandez who was born in 1960. If they'd said he lives on Carrizo Street, you know, they would have looked at Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez Jr. or the other Carlos Hernandez who also lived on Carrizo. If he'd said his mom's, a, you know, his mom's a bruja, her name's Fidella, they would have looked at Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez. But I don't think that they would have ended up finding that he was the real killer because he doesn't look like Carlos Valena in 1983. And they have no connection in 1983. Right. Not one member of Carlos Valena's family, even today, provides any connection to Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 and this is one of the dangers of the court of public opinion because Dr. Liebman and the Innocence Project could not go into any court in Texas or federal and present this and succeed in exonerating Carlos DeLuna. The majority of it's hearsay. Uh, a lot of it relies on interviews done in the 2000s about events in 1983 from people who didn't remember them very clearly. You know, one of the constables who uh, found DeLuna under the truck claimed that this all went down at 10 o'clock at night when everything happened at 8 o'clock. Or at 9 o'clock at night, you know, everything happened at 8 but he says, oh, no, we were going to the office. We had a late paper to serve. It was about 9.30. And it was 10 o'clock we heard about the um, the robbery. Um, they, they talked to uh, the detective who's no longer in police work, and she remembers hearing two tapes, not just one. But as we discussed, the context of what Wanda says, and George Geary's statement, it suggests very strongly that what we hear is the only call Wanda made. So, um, you know, that's that's just, and like I said, I mean, there's a lot of criticism of Jesus Escocia, but you know, he he maybe could have, you know, he maybe could have stopped when she said, I've got a suspect with a knife inside the store. Maybe he could have stopped and said, dispatched a car to Sigmore. But I, you know, the only difference it might have made was that DeLuna might have ran into the arms of the police as they were arriving. Uh-huh. Because it happened so quickly, you know, into her call. She would have been stabbed. The knife 
penetrated her lung. She was bleeding very heavily internally um, and had the punctured lung and all the fluid in her chest. And, you know, your heart just can't take that. Uh, and, Absolutely. And, you know, the paramedic care was, was getting better, but they didn't have the tools or the training to do. I think I think now paramedics or EMTs can put in a chest tube in the field in some jurisdictions. Whereas here they just had to, you know, try and get her stabilized, get her in the ambulance and get her to the hospital as quick as they could. Um, but yeah, that, I, I think that's the only difference. If he dispatched somebody immediately when she said, I've got a suspect with a knife in the side, inside the store, if he'd said, you know, we've got a, a suspect with a knife, Sigmore, you know, I still think by the time police got there, everything would have gone down. I don't think it would have right. saved Wanda Lopez. Um, the only, like I said, the only difference would be Carlos Carlo Deluna would have run out of the store and been immediately caught by police. You know, he would have been tackled in the field or shot dead. Although right. he didn't have the knife when he ran out the store because that got left in the store. But he would have been tackled in the field uh, or shot fleeing. Um, uh-huh. But it, I don't think it would have saved Wanda. And it it still wouldn't have, wouldn't have prevented questions. Because I think he still would have tried to say it with somebody else that stabbed her and ran out before I did, because that was the kind of person he was. And he's still manipulating people even from the grave. Right, right. So, any thoughts? <laughs> you read the Wikipedia article. What do you... I mean, one of the only things that stood out to me was the fact that, um, and I forget what his name was, but I I believe it was uh, the victim's uh, brother said that she didn't believe that he did it. I forget uh, when this was, but said that he didn't believe there was any way he did it. But, you know, that's about the only thing that that I see. Yeah, her brother's brother's name is Richard Vargas, but, you know, I'm going to say this. I think, and I know from a friend of, uh, not a friend, an acquaintance of mine on one of the discussion boards, when these defense investigators are working to try and prove someone is innocent of the crime that they were convicted of, they will come to you and they will either, A, tell you they have proof that the person is innocent and they need your help. And if you still believe the person's guilty, then they will say, well, don't you want the truth? Don't you want to know what really happened? And they will keep pushing at you and pushing at you to try and get you to come to their side. Right. And they will claim that they have proof that they don't have. I mean, frankly, and I find it to be the most distasteful part of post-conviction litigation is when investigators try and get the victim's family to support 
the person who has been found guilty of the murder. Leave them alone. I don't understand why it's wrong for parents or family members to believe the result of a criminal trial and an unsuccessful direct appeal and unsuccessful state post-conviction claims and federal habeas claims, even if you don't agree with that. I mean, I constantly see comments about the prosecutors are lying to these. I used to see, I mean, the the families, the Moors used to get calls, blaming them for Eccles being in prison. Like they had done something. Like it was their fault. It's twisted. And so that's all. They, They went and they said, we have information we have proof that Carlos Gonzalez Hernandez is the one who really killed your sister. Of course he's going to believe DeLuna didn't do it. And they're probably the ones that told him there was a first 911 call too, which there wasn't. Michael? Yes, ma'am. I apologize. Okay. I, I, thought, I thought we either had gotten cut off again or you were just too afraid to talk. No. It makes no, me angry. I, I, I wish defense investigators do what you've got to do. Gather what you can get. But please, please leave the victim's families out of it until you actually have proven what you say. It doesn't matter if they believe your client is guilty or not. You know, but don't don't go getting them invested in your client being innocent only to have it not proven and you know a court saying, No, this isn't this isn't sufficient. Right. Right. And you know, and if they tell you I'm not interested, go thank you. Leave them alone. Because this acquaintance was bothered. And every time she said, I'm not interested, I'm not going to do that, I have no doubts. They would say, well, don't you want the truth? People are lying and it's a cover-up and, you know, everybody's lying to you and you don't care about your daughter and all these things. You know, trying to make her feel guilty. And like I said, I mean, you know, victims' families generally very rarely have any first-hand information that's of any use anyway. So unless you're applying for clemency and having the victim's family say, I forgive you, and you saying, I did it and I'm sorry, leave victim's families alone. Defense investigators have no reason to talk to victim's families ever, ever, ever. Right. Um, so, okay, I'm off my soapbox again. Before before <laughs> blog talk cuts us off. Right, right. That's a whole other soapbox. I know, I know. All right, well, that's, uh, like I said, any, any other final thoughts? Uh, Richard Vargas, yeah, but I think they came in and told him, you know, we have proof somebody else, else did it, and... 
uh, it was mistaken identity, and you know, I, I I just I feel bad for that family. Um, and now, you know, I guess because he at one time said, "If the cops don't get him, I will." Mm-hmm. As far as Deluna was concerned, so uh, I I don't know. But it also may be there may be an element of he's going to say what they want to hear, but that's not really what he believes. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I don't know. I really don't. I just I just wish that defense investigators. Go to the go to the family to learn about the victim, but don't try to tell them that they believe the wrong thing, or that you know something you don't know, or rather, don't tell them you know something you cannot prove. Right. If you're still investigating, right. you cannot prove it. Yeah, I agree. So I think we're I, I think we're stick a fork in us. <laughs> I think we done. Okay. Unless okay. you again well, unless I you have I won't final interrupt. that I won't interrupt you on. I mean really I think it's pretty open and closed. I think the gentleman did it and you know, justice was served. All right. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Conahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week on Tuesday, February 5th, 2019 at 8 p.m. Central. For episode 37, State of Idaho versus Tori Adamczyk and Brian Jape, who were convicted and sentenced to life in prison for the September 2006 murder of classmate Cassie Jo Stoddard. We'll talk about the evidence against Adamczyk and Draper, their direct appeals, and the challenges raised to mandatory life sentences as a, for juveniles as a result of the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Montgomery versus Louisiana. Until then, have a great week. Stay safe. Good night.